Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast, where we navigate the dark waters of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Season one of Anglerfish tells the story of my rise and fall as the original internet godfather and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to now being focused on protecting people from the type of person I used to be. The second season of the Anglerfish podcast dives into the deepest, darkest waters of our online lives. We'll be discussing fraud and financial cybercrime, sure, but also human trafficking, drugs, cyberbullying, fake news, extremist groups, nation-state attacks, child pornography, and more. Anglerfish believes shedding light on the darkest parts of the Internet helps us to better understand the problems and find solutions instead of living in a world of fear. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast. truth of the matter is I am not judge, jury, or executioner. But here's the other truth of the matter. I met my first child predator when I was in the first grade. R.W. Combs Elementary School. I was in the first grade and there was this janitor that every single kid was scared to death of because the janitor would come in the bathroom and watch you use the bathroom. We boys used to go to the bathroom in groups because we were scared to death. I still remember this one time when I didn't have a group to go with and I had to pee. So I go there. I, I don't want to stand at the urinal. So I go in one of the stalls. The stalls don't lock because you're in elementary school. So they just kind of close there. So I'm sitting there trying to pee as fast as I can. I hear the door open. It's the janitor. He comes over. He opens the stall door and he just watches me use the bathroom. Thing about it is, is when you're in the first grade, you don't know what the hell's going on. You don't know that guy's some sort of predator. You know, he's creepy. Every kid was scared of him. They knew something was wrong, but you know, we never mentioned that to our to the adults. We never mentioned that to the adults. That's the first child predator I met. The next time I met a child predator was when I went to prison. Yeah, Big Spring, Texas. 20% of the population, child predators, child pedophiles. And I'm going to tell you one thing that I learned. There is no rehabilitation for these people. I was incarcerated with child predators, pedophiles for six years. I never met one, and I talked to many. I never met one that truly repented, regretted his actions. It was always, oh, I loved her. Oh, she loved me. It wasn't like that. The, it wasn't like the prosecution said. It wasn't like, I never did that. It's no wonder that the rest of the inmates wanted to kill them. And often they would try to kill them. But like I said, I'm not judge, jury, or executioner. I don't like to see people like that. I, don't like to, I saw two murders when I was locked up. Two murders. I saw a guy literally beaten to death. One inmate had him down on the ground. He had him by the head and he was just ramming his head into the pavement. Took the guards 15, 20 minutes to get out there. And by that point in time, believe you me, it was too late. So no, I didn't want to see that. And the thing is, is I was a snitch in prison. I came, I came into prison being a snitch. Every single inmate knew it within the first 30 days when Wired Magazine hits the compound and Brett Johnson's name's all in it about being a snitch for the United States Secret Service. Believe you me, that does not send a good message to the rest of the inmates. They don't want, they don't like you. They don't, they don't hate you as much as the pedophiles, but by God, they don't like you. The only thing that saved me was I was teaching the Aryan Brotherhood how to commit fraud. I didn't have to join the gang. They gave me protection. 
but I was not liked. I didn't, that's not liked. I didn't get to watch television for six years because television is, you know, that's a privilege. You can't be a snitch and watch TV. We don't allow you in here. So I talked to a lot of pedophiles. I talked to a lot of them. I mean, a lot and not one, not one ever, ever regretted his actions. We had this old cat. He used to go through magazines and he would clip out pictures of the youngest girls that he could find, babies, whatever, and he would post them in his locker. He would tape them up in his locker like they were centerfolds. That was this guy. We had another guy, Wesley Evans. He talks his wife into letting him have a girlfriend. Turns out the girlfriend he wants is 13 years old. He sends this girlfriend an airplane ticket to go from Massachusetts all the way down to Las Vegas, Nevada, where Wesley's supposed to pick her up. Turns out it wasn't a 13-year-old girl. It was the federal authorities. So Wesley's there. He's promptly arrested. His wife is back at the house with camera equipment and a script that has everything plotted what they want to do to this girl. Wesley gets 20 years. The girl gets 15. I mean, I'm sorry, the wife gets 15. No one ever regretted it. They don't, they don't, there's no, I don't, there's no rehabilitation for that. There is no rehabilitation for that. Like I said, I'm not judge, jury, or executioner. I just know what, I, what I've seen. I saw two people being murdered. I didn't want to see people getting beaten, not if I could do something about it. So what did I do? I start forging documents from inside prison. Oh yeah, I start forging documents so that some of these pedophiles don't get their asses killed. I start forging the sentencing documents so that they can show that to these gangs so that the gangs think they're in there for trafficking drugs or money laundering or something like that. I still don't know today what I think about that or how I feel about that. Because again, these guys are not, I don't think you can rehabilitate them. I truly don't. But I've, by the same token, I don't think it was... Um, I don't think it's an inmate's responsibility or right to exact justice or revenge or any, anything else on any other inmate that's inside. That's law enforcement's responsibility. That's a judge's responsibility. That's a prosecutor's responsibility. That's society's responsibility, not some damn inmate. So right or wrong, that's what I did. You know, the thing about it is, is that children are the most vulnerable part of our society. There's no doubt about that. About one in 10 children will be sexually abused before their 18th birthday. That's one in seven girls. One in 25 boys will be sexually abused before they turn 18. 20% of those abused, it happens before their age eight. 90% of child sexual abuse victims, they know their abuser. So yeah, this isn't a happy episode we're talking about today, but it's an episode that we need to have because there's no other group on the planet that we need to protect more than children. I'm honored today to be able to talk to Kevin Metcalf of the National Child Protection Task Force. Kevin has worked his entire life to protect people. Today he works with the National Child Protection Task Force and they do exactly that. They do exactly that and they do an outstanding job. They truly do. I asked Kevin to please introduce himself to our listeners. Yes, I am currently a, a deputy prosecuting attorney in the state of Arkansas. I've worked in either law enforcement or you know, something related military since about 1988. So I've been, been around for a long time, primarily on the law enforcement side where I spent most of my time over the years. I worked in both uh, state and local and federal law enforcement up until around 2007. 
became a, at that point, a full-time single dad, only parent. So I left federal law enforcement, came back and went to law school with the intent of going, going back to you know, where I was working the federal system to the U.S. Attorney's Office. I ended up just staying put. My girls, I'd had them by myself since they were two and five, and they were finally stable uh, at that point. So I, I just kind of stayed put. Uh, I used all the experience I had uh, coming from investigations and, and doing these different things. And looking at it as, as a prosecutor, I have to bring cases in front of a jury. I have to put everything together. All the facts have to fit. It's got to be understandable to the jury. You know, all the technical stuff's got to really be broken down into something that's really understandable. Well, I started looking at that as a prosecutor, and I was thinking, why are we not doing this on the front end? Because law enforcement is really, really siloed. The way this developed was as a prosecutor, I started seeing things, seeing connections and relationships and things. So I started doing that more on the, the front end on these investigations and uh, started working for some people teaching cell phone investigations across the country. Every time I would teach, I would just say, if anybody needs any help on any cases, any brainstorming or anything, let me know. So I started uh, reaching out and uh, giving me, sending me records, uh, going over cases, and we started uh, you know, brainstorming stuff. And it developed over time. You know, how do you get really good at something? Well, you practice. Uh, so anyway, my, my experience and skill set increased tremendously you know, over a few years. Uh, and um, anyway, I, I've continued to work as a deputy prosecuting attorney. I have started the task force, and uh, we are, are now you know, expanding that, that network. In the military, did you do law enforcement in the military as well? Uh, yes, I was in guard, the Guard and Reserves. I guess the question is, did you know from, from the time you were a child that you always wanted to go into law enforcement or not? Yes. What gets me is, is okay, so you were on the law enforcement side, and then you go into the prosecution side. So I'm guessing that that gives a, a much clearer understanding and insight than to someone who is just only in law enforcement or someone who is just only on the prosecutorial side. Yes. Uh, I, I see a lot of people... You know, and I'm not finding fault here, but a lot mm -hmm. of people come into prosecution, they've generally, you know, grown up in a stable, I guess, family system anyway, at least economically. So they, they go to, from high school, they go to undergrad, then they go to law school, then they come over and start working. That life experience is a lot different than somebody who has worked the streets for 20 plus years, where you actually see the victims and you see people who are horribly drug addicted and what they go through and you know, I, I think that creates a, a, a lot different mindset. You know, for me, if I, if I know I'm, I'm dealing with somebody who is uh, really addicted and I see that they get arrested again, you know, for drug paraphernalia or something like that, I'm not really surprised. I expect that. That's, that's a powerful, uh, addiction is such a powerful thing that, you know, the threat of punishment is not going to just cure it. One of the things I've, I noticed when I first began this legal career of mine is that there is this huge disconnect between students that are coming out of universities with cybersecurity degrees, certificates, what have you, and the way things actually work on the street. And it sounds like you're saying that that is pretty similar between the prosec prosecutorial side and someone who's coming from law enforcement background that actually sees the way things actually operate, the way things actually work. Yes. And, and it goes the other way, too. When I was a cop, I was... I would complain about some of the things the prosecutors would do. You know, now that I've been doing this, I, I understand a lot more both sides of that. And, and something else you just said really struck with me as well. You, you were talking about, you know, it's not surprising to see someone go back into drugs or crime or what have you. And when I was, when I came out of prison, I, I went through the drug program. I've never been on drugs, but I, I was the liar. I, I went through the program, got it to get time off. And it was, honestly, it was the best lie I ever told. One of the things they said, they preached, was that recovery is never a straight line. 
that you're, there's always, you know, you go forward, you move back, go forward, move back. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're hearkening to is it's not surprising that you'll see people return to drugs or, or return to crime. And, you know, I, I try to talk to people that reach out to me that are, that are criminals and are interested in, in trying to turn their lives around. And, you know, I understand immediately, I tell them the same thing, you know, hey, it's it's not this straightforward path. You're, you're going to backslide, but the idea is to continue to move forward until you finally, you get to that point. Right. It's, it's a, it's a process. Uh, my it son is. is a dietitian and works in a hospital. You know, everybody wants to improve their, their diet, improve their nutrition, how they look. But if you just dump everything on them all at once, it's overwhelming and people feel powerless and they just give up. You know, I'm, I, I'm terrible about it too. I ha how much sugar do I have? I set my mind, but I still have that, that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll still relapse. But yeah, drugs are, are incredibly powerful as are other other things that we become addicted to. I guess what I, you know, I ask you to come on the show because you, you head up, you're president of the National Child Protection Task Force. One of the things I'm really big about these days is this human trafficking, especially when it involves minors. I'm one of the people that I, I want to know what I can do because I don't know what I can do. You know, I, I've got experience in, in crime. I, I've got some technical expertise as well. But I want to help, and I'm not sure what I can do to help. Right. And, and this has been kind of an eye-opening experience. The National Child Protection Task Force started because of the work that, that I was doing. And, and it really kind of blew up a few years ago when I was involved in the recovery of teenagers that had been taken by online sexual predators. How common is that? That is very common. I'm just going to say that I'm, we're not solely into the human trafficking aspect. It is an important thing. Uh, anything that deals with the exploitation of innocent people. Uh, right. Children, of course, a priority always. But, yeah, the prevalence, it, it's, um, well, I think the U.S. is one of the top countries right now in the world where, you know, this kind of stuff is going on. Yeah, it's the uh, U.S. and Philippines, oddly enough, are, are yes. top two. You know, and, and I'll give you some of um, what, I, what I see at the house. I've got a stepson. He's 15 years old. I've got a niece. She is 14. Of course, they've got their smartphones. And with my youngest stepson, his mom wanted to give him a smartphone when he was 12. And I, I disagreed. I raised hell, everything else. Uh, he does not need it. He doesn't have the emotional responsibility to handle that type of device or anything else. She went ahead and got him a smartphone anyway. It lasted about about six months. I went to I took them all to Paris for a TED talk that I was giving, and while I, while we were there, I, I gave strict rules on the phone. I was like, "Hey, dude, uh, look, I'm going to be able, I'm going to monitor your phone. When I say give it to me, I'm going to go through the phone. Don't do this. Don't do that." I gave them all the rules, the consequences, everything else. And as far as I knew, I, well, I hoped he was obeying it. So we came back from Paris, and I looked at him, and I was like, "Phone now!" And uh, he gets the look on his face, which obviously tells me that something's going on. So I'll take the phone, I'm going through, and like, I can't find anything on there, nothing at all. And I'm like, that's odd. But the way, the way the house is set up in our den, the den is off from the kitchen. The kitchen is elevated. So I noticed he was circling like a shark in the den, just making a circle around the island, just every now and then looking down to see if I was still looking at the phone. So I knew something was up. So I started looking at pictures. At this point, he is, I think he's 13 at this point. Start looking at pictures. He's got a picture on there of a, uh, of a girl, underage, that he has talked into sending topless. I, I went and I, I called him down. I was like, you know, what the hell is this? And he tells me, I was like, uh, we have the discussion. I was like, did you send her pictures? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, uh, of your penis? And he was like, yeah. You know, I, I, I work with, uh, with FBI and everything. I informed them. Of course, we all had the chat about child pornography. That began this entire cycle of what I went through with my stepson. It seems to me that 
a lot of children, they get these devices, they, they don't have the emotional ability to, to understand what that device can do, the avenues that can be taken with that device, the predators that are out there that either act like children or groom the child into, into thinking, you know, I love you or whatever the hell is going on to, to be able to, to abuse or take that child or anything else. And I, I, just, I guess I'd like to have your viewpoint on that as well. Nonprofitist Task Force is primarily made up of a network of law enforcement, state, local, federal, and we even have some international and military investigative services. We have, we have a, a pretty big network right now. We see a lot of stuff that goes on. We, we actually see a lot of these conversations. We see how, how the connection starts and how the grooming process goes. And I have a lot of parents, when we do you know, different presentations, are, are asking, what do we do? I am not a big proponent of a cookie cutter approach. In fact, I've, what I've seen, and you know, my, my two girls, you know, they're still at home. Each of them are very, very different. My yeah. interaction with them is very different. My, the things I do with them is very different. So I want to, you know, put that out there that I, I really think that, you know, parents and children, you got to look at that specific relationship because what one parent does with one child may not necessarily work with the second child. So keeping that in mind. I've got a, a couple of volunteers now. Uh, matter of fact, one of them just came through the legal process. Her daughter was sexually abused and she found evidence of it on a cell phone in an app that she never would have expected to see that in. It wasn't Snapchat or anything you hear a lot of. It was a kid app. So uh, I think what, you're, what you were talking about there is monitoring everything. That is really important, especially in the younger years. And I tend to approach this uh, in the same way that I, I did with uh, driving when I was teaching my kids how to drive, that, all right, here's, here's a device, here's some things you can do on it, I'm going to monitor, we're going to you know, work together, open communication, always talk to my kids openly about sex at, at you know, appropriate levels, depending on their age and everything else. You know, with driving, we start off, I think most people probably start off in a parking lot or you know, some really restricted area. Once your child has developed a level of proficiency and skills and you trust them, then maybe we move out onto some of the side roads, something easy. And once they become proficient at that and they've developed that, that trust, you trust them, then maybe you move out onto a, a bigger highway. And you, know, you keep developing like that with the goal being that when they hit 18, they have the necessary skill set and confidence that they can go out and drive on their own. I kind of look at, at mobile devices or, or anything that touches the internet. I kind of look at it the same way. We have to take our kids from a very young age. We have to communicate with them openly about sex, about everything. Because I can promise you, after all the things I've seen, that if, if parents are not talking openly to their kids about sex, somebody's going to. And uh, I, I think that if you don't, that's that's a vulnerability. You know. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, I want to give credit. Um, you know, I, I told you about my stepson, and you know, it was a process with him. It, it truly was. And uh, now he was without a phone again for several months, and. I got to the point he's, he's 15 now. My view, he started to show massive improvement. And I went and I actually bought him one and gave it to him. We sat down and had a talk and it was last week. He comes to me and he sits down. And he's like, Brett, can I talk to you? And I was like, yeah, you can. He's like, look, he said, last night I was on a chat session, me and eight other boys. And uh, he said, one of these boys starts sending out pictures of this girl that he met on a church trip. And I was like, is the girl underage? And he's like, absolutely, she's underage. He said, I said it immediately when he sent it out. He said, uh, I, I disengaged from the chat and everything else. At that point, I looked at him, I said, well, right now, I want the mother's contact information. 
So um, he got me that. I called the mom. I had a discussion with the, the parents of the kid and everything else. And I've notified all the, uh, the parents of the other children. I've noticed, notified the school resource officer. The way this is going right now, my story with my stepson is it looks like he's finally getting to the point where he understands, you know, the severity. What I would ask is, you know, you, we get kids that get these devices. The adults, the parents, a lot of the time, they can only monitor so many things. I mean, a, a child could easily, depending on the on the, the type of monitoring software that's on the phone, a child could easily install chat, chat, uh, Snapchat long enough to have a conversation and then uninstall it and go like that on a daily basis if need be. How do we as parents make sure that doesn't happen? Is it, is it strictly just about communication? Is there any type of monitoring software out there that you're aware of that could, that could see whether they're installing, uninstalling, or lock down a phone well enough that they couldn't install it like that? I think there, there is some. I am not a big uh, proponent necessarily of that. I, I, I know that I've seen some out there, but yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in this, you know, it's not 100%, but the, the relationships. And right. It sounds like your relationship, if, if your stepson came to you and disclosed that, I think he probably had some trust in you. I've seen some parents would have a knee-jerk reaction to saying, oh, you're not getting anything if that's what. Right. Yeah, but he, he came to you with that. He disclosed that to you and trusted you to make the right decision and not punish him for it. I think that's, that's huge. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, and, I, and I told him the same thing. I was like, you know, hey, what? I'll tell you what. I said, uh, you are not to blame for this at all. You've done exactly the right thing. And and he was he was feeling really guilty. And I was like, look, dude, I said, this kid that sent this stuff, you're not responsible for what he did. What you're responsible for is how you handled the situation after he sent those things out. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I read the, the chat session and everything else. And the young man, uh, I mean, he handled the situation completely correctly. And I told him that. And, and I mean, we, it's been a while that we've spent building up that trust between he and me, but it's there. It's there. And I, and I appreciate you saying that you think it's a lot about relationships because ultimately I agree with that. I, I think that uh, we as parents cannot, I mean, we could try to monitor everything, but I think it's, it's a, it's a, a futile fight <laughs> to try to even do that. And, and it is. And, and with your background, I mean, that's a, a gold mine. of <laughs> information, but you know what, one of the things, you know, with my daughters, I was out of the country a lot. I worked in mm-hmm. counterterrorism back when I was in the federal system. So they've had actually, they've had phones for, from a very early age because they were going, and I was a single parent, so they were going to babysitters, to overnight babysitters, to, you know, stuff like that. So I want to make sure they could uh, communicate with me. Uh, again, the, the relationship I developed with them, we could speak openly. So as they grew and we developed trust, you know, if one of their friends got a, I guess I can say dick pic on here, my daughters would grab their phone, scroll up to where I could see the username, take a picture of it and send it to me. And then they would tell their friends, they say, Hey, these are red flags. You know, you're, you're dating this guy. He's controlling. He's so, yeah, I, I may have gone, I don't feel like I went overboard. My daughters really have a good grasp of what, they actually know the word red flags and use it. Is there a, is there a demographic of, of the type of person that reaches out and, and tries to, um, that, that is the predator against children? Is, is there a specific type of demographic or does it cross all lines or what? Oh, we've seen everything. Now, matter of fact, one of, when one of the pictures I got, we would always you know, go through the process of, uh, on the legal side. One time it happened to be a, a guy in his fifties, uh, that was posing as a 16 year old. And this guy had no history of anything. No, there, there can be anything. Just look at the news. The predators can be parents, 
family members, uh, close family friends, doctors, uh, they're, they're politicians, billionaires, police officers, judges. It, it doesn't matter. Right. They, they're hiding in plain sight. So, so since it can be, it can be anyone. Since it does do that, since they're not, since you can't really identify someone based on the look, what do, um, and we need to develop relationships with our children. Is there anything else that we can do to, to, to make sure our children are safe? Well, we need to be very aware, you know, in those relationships, as kids develop, they're naturally going to be separating a bit. I mean, you and I, even without technology growing up, the, you know, we had that, that separation from parents. That's, it's a normal thing. One of the things I did want to point out, when we're talking about the, the parents with their kids, we have seen a, and, and this has to do with the prevalence of cheap phones and then upgrades and, you know, how many, how many phones are roaming around out here? You know, we've upgraded and we've got old phones laying around. My uh, daughters and their friends, I, I try to monitor everything, but they will tell me that at school, uh, one of their friends, their parents, have, they have monitoring software on the phone. So what they'll do is either leave the phone there, hand it to a friend, and grab their other phone, their burner phone. <laughs> of course, of course. Where real accounts are. And that's also another thing. Predators, if they, once they establish that rapport, they'll say, oh, your parents are monitoring stuff, so uh, I'm just going to give you this phone. You know, and it could be somebody they're in school with. Uh, you know, here's his phone. So parents definitely need to be on the lookout for secondary devices. Uh, on the predator side, because, you know, I, I was the informant in prison, so I was kind of the outcast. You know, I, I knew several pedophiles and predators that were in prison. And the ones that I, that I did speak to across the board, I mean, there was never one that regretted his choices. He always, it was always the, the I loved her. It, it wasn't like, the prosecution said it was, it was all these excuses of mm-hmm. how to justify being a predator against a 12 year old, a 13 year old. What have you noticed about uh, that type of predator mentality? That is very common and across the board that justifying actions to support you know, your own gratification and your own benefit. Yeah, that's just incredibly common. And, and they actually don't see any problem with it. If you go to places like 4chan, 8chan, you know, some of the really bad places, right. see some of the discussions, it's just... Do you think that, um, and I guess it's probably an unfair question, because I, I certainly have an opinion on it. Do you think that there's any, um, any rehabil- rehabilitation for a child predator? Oh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a lot of confidence in that. As a prosecutor, you know, I've, uh, it used to be where I oh, just especially as a young, young cop or something, throw everybody in prison, just leave them there or, or whatever. It doesn't work that way. We have limited resources. Most of the people I want to put in are predators. And I use that word for a reason. It's not, I mean, I've seen people convicted of, uh, you know, this, this guy turns 18 and his uh, girlfriend for the last three years is you know, 16 and they exchange something and he's arrested. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. Right. We're getting people who are actual predators. They're out here preying on very young children. Those people, I, I want to keep locked up for a long time. I agree. So I, my, my uh, unqualified medical opinion is no, I don't think they can be. Well, and that's, you put it a hell of a lot nicer than I usually do. My, 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 my answer is uh, no, hell no. There's no way you're going to rehabilitate that. <laughs> so, right. Right. <laughs> um, what does, so I know you guys do a lot of, um, you know, working to rescue these kids. What does a, is there a typical rescue? And if there is, what does it look like? We have 
really specialized in what we do. We're, we're kind of a, acting as a hub. There are a lot of nonprofits that are doing things, you know, because the government just can't. You know, mm -hmm. It's not going to be enough. Law enforcement can't do everything. And we bring together expertise and resources to rapidly identify and locate a person, whether that's a victim or the predator or both. So within that specialization, uh, we, we work a lot with federal agencies and, and agencies across the country, and actually now even some international agencies, because we have you know, developed this level of expertise that is not common pretty much anywhere. There is you know, a need to, to combine things. I need people who can do cryptocurrency. I, I can't, you know, the, the level of understanding and proficiency in that is, is pretty high, especially when you get into these tumblers and uh, you know, some of the other things trying to trace this stuff. So we, we team up with other people. But uh, to get back to your question, a, a rescue, when we get called in, we are hopefully getting in immediately or within you know, a few hours of a child or a person going missing. That is the key time when, when those, those indicators are going to be there. So right. what we do is we get in and we're looking and digging and we have a, a legal process where we get legal information. I've got people who are plugging that, those data points we get back into open source and we have, have access to some closed source, but plugging into that and it kind of goes both ways. So we're actually using legal closed and open source data and it's a very powerful mix. That information is provided to whoever is on the ground, wherever they are. So we're not actually there kicking doors or doing anything like that, mm -hmm. although we have people in our network that do it. Most of the time, what we're doing is putting this very high level of expertise in, you know, for lack of a better term, cyber tracking or right. locating you know, through, through, the, uh, through the internet and these electronic traces. We sniff that out. We find the connections, the relationships. We identify the gaps and look, to, look for uh, where can we pick this trail up. And then we feed that back to the boots on the ground who hopefully can go and, and rescue the, the child. Outstanding. And so when the child is rescued, what, what does that look like for the child? Where does the child initially go once oh, the rescue takes place? That's, that's another uh, subject that has been very uh, uncomfortable for me, just knowing what I know over the last right. few years. And you know, with, over the last few years, I have really worked to team up with the Victim Services side for a variety of reasons. But one of those things being... When we recovered somebody, we have a victim. If you're dealing with a minor, what do you do with them? That's not an easy thing for most states to figure out. All we have is juvenile detention. And that's not, to me, that's not a good, that's not a good option. We're not going to arrest this kid. Right. Hopefully, because the, the kid's a victim. And we, you know, again, this is not within my realm, but I want to help people who do this. But we need people out here setting up, you know, homes or, or some, some short, sort of a, at least a short-term housing, you know, solution. Because when we recover these victims, a lot of times, a lot of these agencies have no place to put them. And, you know, it's interesting that you said that. And the reason I asked, um, one, of my, one of my friends, um, he's former FBI out of Salt Lake City. And he now, he, he's in the private sector now, but he, he does a lot of human trafficking work on the side. He went to uh, Las Vegas and he works with a group and they ended up rescuing, uh, I think it's like 19 girls. And it turns out that the state of Nevada has no place for these rescued minors to go. So Child Protective Services, they asked one of the girls, where do you want to go? And the girl responded, I want to go home. Home being the pimp's house where she was at. The, at the end of the story, the CPS person put the girl, the minor, in the car 
and took her back to the trafficker's house. And um, that story today still, I mean, that, that, actually that breaks my heart. That happened. That happened. Yeah, I, I, I don't even know what to say about that. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, that's, that's one of the things I've been seeing is that, uh, you know, a lot of the states simply do not have any type of infrastructure for these victims. Um, right, right. And I just, uh, I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, there's, there's no place to put them, but I, I can't see that being a justifiable action. Same here. Same here. Um, let me ask you, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these children, they come from homes that uh, abuse is already apparent in the house, physical abuse, sexual abuse. A child is rescued. At that point, I mean, do we, do we send the child back to the, the abuse environment of the house? Do, do we potentially put the child in foster care? Does, I mean, what, uh, what needs to be done there? And because uh, it seems like there's not really a, a clear answer or a, a, a map of, of what needs to be done. Yeah. And the way that this, this task force and the things that we're doing has developed, I tend to look at a lot of things in a before, during, and after you know, concept. Mm-hmm. In this case, to me, it looks almost like you know, we're dealing with the war on drugs. Most people are familiar with that. Right. We have production. Uh, distribution and consumption. You know, it's a business model. Well, the the production side is is where you're talking, and you know, producing drugs, you're growing them or creating them or whatever. How are we producing trafficking victims? Or, you know, one of the things we're seeing a lot of is these predators are actually parents. So yeah, the the parents are, and now with everybody being locked down, they have full access to these kids, and right. they are they're they're networked. There's a network across the country, across the world, of like-minded parents or like my, or people who have access to children. So they're doing live stream sexual abuse of children. How do you stop that? Well, you know, this is going to take a community effort. And this is one of the things I've been pushing is it takes everybody, everybody, whether you have kids or not, you know, to be aware of what's going on. Right now, if you know, we're, we're interacting with teachers over Zoom or whatever it is, Teachers may pick up on something that, you know, triggers uh, an awareness that maybe something's going on there. Uh, we're going to have to develop a better system. You know, parents need to keep an eye out for other kids that are coming into your home. Who do your kids hang out with? Who are their friends? Are there any indications that, that something bad is going on in their house? It, it, there's no real easy answer. It's just going to come down to an awareness of what to look for and taking responsibility. Don't just look at it and say, oh, I'm glad that's not my kid. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. And, you know, you guys do, um, you guys do amazing work. You truly do. People out there listening, what can they start doing now to assist with this? Well, it really depends on where they are. You know, what, let's just say the, the average parent, they, you know, go to work, come home. Uh, again, develop that relationship with your kids. Have your kids keep an eye out for their friends. Or other kids at school, maybe maybe there are kids there that are loners that they don't associate with other people. I think we have to develop more of a community responsibility where we look out for each other. Things have gotten way too much into the you know this is all about me, and uh, I think to really to make a difference in this, uh, Simon Sinek, his book uh, The Infinite Game. I don't know if you've read that or not. <laughs> no, I've not, but I'll certainly look it up. Yeah, well. He, you see a lot of these nonprofits, a lot of other places saying, Hey, we're going to end, you know, child sexual abuse. We're going to end human trafficking. We're going to, we're going to wipe this out. 
I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's a good goal, but this is an infinite game. And you know, there are people that get upset because I call it a game, but it, it's the concept. No, you're right. It, it, it's not, it's not a game like, like Monopoly. It's a game like game theory. It's a game. It's a, it certainly yes, is. But in an infinite game, you don't really know who the players are and there are no set rules. The rules can be changed at any time. There's no finish line. How long has prostitution been around? How long have we had bad parents? Well, this is going to have, this is going to be going on and we have to be able to, to broaden out what we do. So the responsibility for the task force, I partner up with, with technology, with people on the tech side, and this has taken a while to develop this professional relationship where the trust and professional uh, responsibility comes in. These tech companies, this is their system. I'm trying to hunt bad people in their system. I have people now in a lot of places where I can just say, this is what's going on. Can you help me find this? And they're, they're stepping up and helping. Have you had, uh, has it been, uh, you say they're stepping up and helping. Has there been any platform that has simply not responded positively to you? I don't really want to say anything bad about any of them because I've been working a while to develop these relationships. They don't know me. I've worked very hard at at having responsible people in my organization that uh, we always follow up the legal process. We make sure things are not abused and they're not done for the wrong reason. So I I would say I've been, been pretty happy with the relationships once we finally get a get our foot in the door and they find out who we are and what we're doing so i think that's and that's something that's a lot different you know law enforcement tends to have this expectation of i sent you this search warrant you give me everything you've got and there's a lot of pushback there's a lot of pushback because they're you know a lot of these search warrants are done with with some sort of boilerplate language or they're asking for too much or they're you know including it's too broad so what we're trying to do is to really understand what these agencies have to fine tune our legal process based on what we can ask for under the circumstances based on, you know, what, what the, what the uh, organization has, you know, these, these uh, relationships have developed over time. We have to make sure we maintain that. Kevin Metcalf, I appreciate you coming on the show. If anyone who wants to, to try to contact you, to donate, to assist, how would they go about doing that? Well, they can go to our website, uh, ncptf.org. It's the National Child Protection Task Force. They can donate through there. And that, that is one of the things that, that I am really, really bad about is uh, fundraising. But we, we have had some other people step up and just say, hey, the, these resources will help you. Just use them. So uh, we, we've been able to take some really good platforms and put them to use on important cases. I usually don't have an end cap to the interviews, but I thought it was needed at this point. Kevin Metcalf and the National Child Protection Task Force do an amazing job at helping to protect children across the planet. I can't overstate that enough. I can't overstate that the most vulnerable part of our planet are children. That if there's one group that needs to be protected, it's children. Kevin gives some excellent advice on this, on how to do that, on the work that they're doing. I would ask everyone to please act on this. Here's the deal. You're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. If you're sitting there just saying, oh, it's horrible, it's horrible, I wish that that didn't happen, I cannot believe that's happening to children, that's the only thing you're saying and you're not acting on that. You're just sitting on the sofa in front of your laptop or you're listening to it on this podcast and you're not actually acting on it. That's a problem. You're part of the problem. The solutions are pretty easy. Just pay attention to your children. Pay attention to other people's children, what they may be going through. Help out with law enforcement. 
contact the National Child Protection Task Force. Learn from them. I'm Brett Johnson, and this is Anglerfish. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Anglerfish Podcast. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H dot com. Other than saying hello, feel free to email questions, comments, concerns, or even show suggestions. I respond to every single email I get. And please, tell your friends about us. Rate and review Anglerfish wherever you can. As Anglerfish continues to navigate the dark waters of our online lives, remember, stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant.